0: Beautiful, for us.
1: Now we speak for ourselves, Saturday means solidarity, collecting our strike pay together, explaining the justice of our course to others.
2: In May of 1888, women and teenage girls working at the Bryant and May Match Factory in London went out on strike. Few Americans will have heard of the Match Girls Strike, but it was a landmark victory in working class history. On today's show, Union Do's host Simon Sapper explores the legacy of the Matched Girls strike on union organizing, safe working conditions, a collective voice, and women's emancipation. And Simon finds a golden thread linking then to now. And on labor history in two...
3: The year was 1786. Daniel Shays led a group of farmers in an armed uprising. They were angry about taxes levied by the state of Massachusetts.
2: I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Welcome to the Union News Podcast.
4: The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable, digital delight and appreciation. In this special episode, why the Match Girls strike of 1888 is still relevant today, and the campaign for a permanent memorial.
5: We'll hang O'Brien on a
0: sour apple tree, we'll hang O'Brien on a sour apple tree, we'll hang O'Brien on a sour apple tree, as we go marching in.
4: That was the Pete Dunhill choir singing the Match Girl song taken from the Working River collection of songs. The Match Girl strike of 1888 holds a special place in British history. It is often cited as one of the first recorded industrial disputes, if not the very first. The story of how 1,300 girls and young women working with deadly white phosphorus at the Bryant and May Match Factory in London's East End said enough attracted immediate support from sympathetic, high-profile activists like Annie Besant, The Times Newspaper, and the nascent Salvation Army, the latter building a rival match factory with safer products and better pay. The strike spawned a political, social and moral legacy that is still felt today in the spheres of union organisation, safer working practices and women's emancipation. But if you seek a monument to the match girls... You will search in vain. Yes, there's the odd roundel set into the pavements of Spitalfields, a celebratory poem on a board in the 2012 Olympic Village, a prize-winning poster in the TFL Museum's collection. That is what the Match Girls Memorial Charity seeks to put right, a permanent and suitable recognition of the dispute and those who took part in it. The latest development in the campaign is a book of prose and poetry inspired by the strikers. We'll be hearing from the winning entrants later in the programme. First, here's Samantha Johnson, chair of the charity, on how she discovered her own family's connection with the strike and how that led to the campaign for a lasting
0: memorial. Sam,
4: your great-grandmother was very influential in the Match Girl strike, Sarah, Sarah Chapman, but how did you even find out that she was involved at all?
6: So it was very strange. I mean, very, very late on, in fact, only the end of 2016 that I found out by complete accident. So I've been doing some other family history and uh, i had been urged by other family members to investigate the uh, the male line of, of my father's family. And so I just basically typed into Google, uh, Sarah Chapman and Charles Henry Dearman, who was my great grandfather, he was the one I was interested in. And then up pops this forum on Ancestry.com that, that where um, a lady called Anna Robinson was appealing for information about Sarah Chapman because she had been a, a match girl in the famous 1888 strike.
0: Wow! So
6: this is—I is, know this is what I was faced with, and, and of course I, I checked some of the other details that she gave, and you know they spoke about Sarah's, Sarah and Charles's daughter, and that she lived in Bushy, and all of these things, and I thought, this is my family. This is the, these are my great grandparents, and it was just—it was a, a real moment of revelation. And you know, I remember actually I was working that day. It was a Monday morning, and I, I basically told Greg we were so excited. I think we spent the whole day googling instead of
0: doing
6: been. <laughs> Um, nothing short of a roller coast coaster ride ever since, really, because um, you know we've got more and more into the finding out about the story and what Sarah did. So yeah, it's been a fantastic journey.
4: So, and and what was Sarah's distinctive contribution uh, to to the dispute?
6: So, I mean, she she was, you know, obviously one of the you know the fourteen hundred girls and women that went out on the strike. But she joined the strike committee, um, and we believe that she was one of the three who went in to speak to Annie Besant the day after they went out on strike. And then also, because she was on the strike committee, she would have been involved in various activities they did, you know, speaking in public, they went to Parliament to meet MPs, and she would have been in the thick of that. Afterwards, they after they won the strike, they formed a a union committee, and Sarah was elected to be on that. Um, But I think the, the one thing that makes her stand out from from the others is that she was the first one to be chosen to represent them at the TUC Mm. later that year. You know, I think, I think during the strike, she was, you know, she was one of a number of them that were kind of, you know, leading the, the kind of call for change, et cetera, and speaking to the prominent people of the time and the newspapers and the MPs and Annie and her colleagues in the Fabian society, et cetera. But I think that's, that's the thing for me that, that does make her, you know, stand out because, what it says to me is that they wouldn't have elected her to represent them if she hadn't been a strong forceful power for them du- you know during the strike so i think that that kind of speaks volumes
4: gosh it, it what a you know what a story to come across and to de- and 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 to develop and, and it led to the formation of the match goss memorial fund charity so that's right
6: yes yeah so I mean, basically, as I said, we discovered this in late 2016. And, and the first thing that happened was, you know, that we went to discover Sarah's grave. So Anna Robinson, who who actually it turned out had written a whole thesis about Sarah, we, we tracked her down and found out and she was able to tell us where Sarah's grave was. So we went to find that. And that kind of kept us interested for a year because you know, we told you before of the the um, campaign we have to try and save the the grave from being mounded. But then as as we got more and more into the story and found out more and more about it and did more research, we we just realised what just an amazing story it was. And significantly was that there was no memorial, no permanent memorial to the Match Girls in the East End. and We felt that this was, was definitely something that needed to be corrected. So we set about setting up this, this charity and we formed the charitable company in March 2019. And we, we now have a almost 20 strong team of people who represent unions and you know activists and there's other descendants on the on the team as well. And we've just got a fantastic a group of people that are helping us kind of forge ahead to 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 meet the aim of of getting a statue and, and other memorials. In fact, we're we're not you know we're not um, just set on statue. It could be a, a mural or you know other plaques and things like that to represent the the different things that all of the match girls did. Match girls at Whitson,
5: eighteen eighty eight. They clatter out of the paragon, fringed, feathered, fell mouthed singing at voice tops, filling the air with sparking exuberance. Arm in arm, a battalion in beer, cheeking the chaps that catcall from curbsides, offering to treat them. Mary doubles up with laughter so hard, she says it makes her teeth ache. At each alleyway and street corner, they turn another girl loose until only two are left to say goodnight. Maggie becomes a song disappearing into darkness. Sarah, at the lodging door, hopes Mrs Meany has glued herself to sleep amongst finished boxes stacked high on the table. Hopes she isn't waiting up with a what time do you call this? Hey, you'll catch it when they lock you out for half a day. A whispered baggage. Fosse jaw set to chew so hard at Sarah she has to look away. Hopes there'll be no out on your ear if you don't make the rent. To follow her up the wooden hill to a damp bed shared with a killed mood. To work rosary beads through her fingers. Pray for change. Wake in the night with a start to see her work things glowing away on the chair, like an omen or a visitation.
4: That was Sam Johnson, chair of the Match Girls Memorial Charity, followed by Emma Purcells, reading her poem, Match Girls at Whitson, 1888. The legacy of the strike in terms of drama and music is comprehensive and varied. Graham Johnson probably knows more about this than anyone, so it was great to chat to him to get an overview of a crowded space. He'll be followed by Debbie Rowles reading Saturday Night. The Match Girls were, were clearly important to their families and their, 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 their descendants, but there's a wider resonance, a wider connectivity between the Match Girls and the, and the dispute, and lots of other things as well.
7: Uh, well, the, the connectivity is in, in, in how they all suffered from uh, working in the factories and in home. The factory that uh, we're talking about, Brian and May, was set up in 1861. And by then, uh, phosphorus had been discovered and was being used in, in creating matches In the UK, a chap called John Walker is credited with producing the first friction matches, but he didn't use phosphorus. And phosphorus came in, it was invented, or the phosphorus match was invented around about 1830 uh, by a Frenchman called Charles Soria. And so matches started being produced using this white phosphorus. And um, by 1938, or there about 38, the 40s, uh, cases of necrosis were being uh, discussed. Now, in, in necrosis meant that uh, the, these workers using uh, the, the phosphorus compounds were absorbing it because, of course, they, they they stayed at their workstations for food and all the rest of it, and all day. And the people working at home would have had phosphorus around as well. The, the manifestation of it was uh, problems with their jaws, usually, eventually teeth dropped out and, and bones began to dismantle and, and people actually literally could lose their jaws. And, and this is known as fuzzy jaw. This is the word that you will um, you will come across. So there, this, there were loads of cases of these. Uh, it wasn't the only danger. Children would be, little kids would suck on matches and they, they would die. There's reported cases of kids dying just through sucking on matches. Um, And by 1852, Dickens was reporting cases in his newsletter. And so there was a a lot of problems arising from the use of this so-called white phosphorus. By uh, 1860, in London, there were reportedly 29 small factories producing matches, and these were like small industries, no no control over conditions whatsoever, and and then in 1861 the Bryant and May factory opened. They took over um, an old candle factory and crinoline factory in Fairfield Road. So uh, the fuzzy jaw was a problem. Numerous cases were reported, even in. Uh, In the nineties, they were still producing. I've got a figure here of something like thirty-six thousand million matches, all using this so-called white phosphorus. Wow! And and so uh, the problems were everywhere.
4: But it, but it didn't. The production process didn't have to be quite so dangerous, did they? Because the Salvation Army set up an alternative match factory, I I believe.
7: Yes, um, red phosphorus uh, was was uh, invented which was safer uh, but more expensive difficult to actually produce and much more expensive and so despite the fact that this was available um, many factories including uh, Brian May continued using the white phosphorus but the uh, Salvation Army William Booth of course had his, has had ideas of how to what he thought he could do to change society and one of the things he did was to set up a a factory using red phosphorus, where not only were the working conditions safer, uh, but they also paid uh, his employees more money than was usual. This was set up in 1891, uh, ironically only about half a mile from the Bryant and May factory. They went into production and it was called the Lights in Darkest England their products, Unfortunately, um, they they eventually went out of business um, some 10 years later it, because of the costs involved, but they had made a huge impact. And uh, and eventually, uh, uh, by 1906, there was a thing called the Bern Convention in Europe when European countries came together to try to see what, what they could do about the use of white phosphorus. European companies signed up saying they wouldn't use it, but The UK didn't, and I've yet to identify exactly why the UK wouldn't sign up to it. Uh, But eventually, um, the the UK industry uh, was controlled by an act which banned white phosphorus, and that didn't come in until 1908. But even then, the companies were given... 2 years to to get away from white phosphorus so it wasn't it wasn't actually illegal to use white phosphorus until after
4: 1910 gosh gosh so so, so 20 over 20 years after the match girls strike yes my my goodness yeah my goodness yeah. and and of course but the match girls strike as well as eventually leading to the banning of white of white phosphorus uh, has has spawned many there's much interest and respect and admiration, which expresses itself in in all sorts of in all sorts of artistic endeavors, doesn't it?
7: I mean, the the, the impact the the strike had uh, culturally, shall we say, manifested itself first of all in 1939-40 uh, uh, when Robert Mitchell wrote a play. Um, in, in 1940, called the Match Girls, and, and this this went round the country in because he was with the Unity Theatre in London, and there were branches of the Unity Theatre Unity Theatre throughout the country. So uh, this went round the country, and it even went. Um, I, I've got records of it being in Australia in 1945 in Sydney. It was a bit of it. It was a tragedy uh, in the much as much as the heroine dies in the end. But it wasn't until the middle fifties that we, we began to see what we know most people know today, which are musicals about the Match Girls. And uh, this was uh, again put together by Bill Owen and Tony Russell who wrote the lyrics. And um, this this uh, this play this this musical eventually made it into the East End into the, sorry into the West End uh, in nineteen sixty six. But at the same time, there was another play another musical in the in the west end called strike a light and this was by a lady called joyce adcock and she started her life working in the leeds arts center and her play had gone around glasgow and other places and eventually her sorry her musical had gone to glasgow and eventually ended up in the piccadilly theater in the east end in the west end <laughs> i've got so used to saying east end i can't say it <laughs> in the in west end uh in uh, 1966. And the interesting thing about uh, her play particularly is that um, all the other plays, they with the Match Girls, they use a first name only. In, in Strike A Light with Joyce Hadcock, she actually, her lead character is Sarah Chapman. <laughs> so that's the, uh, the story of the plays. Um, music, uh, Match Girls have influenced music in as much as um, uh, even today you can find... Um, um, recordings people have made of um, uh, you know the battle hymn of the republic john brown's body lies a molding in the grave well the match girls are known to marching along the the, the east end singing they, they'll hang old bryant on on the old apple tree to that 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 very same tune there were songs uh, created for the anniversary and the 100th anniversary and by a chap called john prosser and Bob and Jill Berry, a song called "Inton's Glory. And more recently, uh, Matt Hill at the People's History Museum in, London, in uh, Manchester has uh, recorded songs about the Match Girls. But I suppose the most common thing that people will probably know of is a piece of music called Spark Catchers, written by a young composer called Hannah Kendall. And uh, her she, she had... Uh, uh, her first performance at the proms in 2017
4: and it seems it, 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 it seems that the story of the match girls is so embedded in uh, across such a wide range of of um, cultural um ideas formats and, and expressions and yet there is still no memorial to them. And and which is which is like peculiar, isn't it? If it's if it's something that 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 for good reason, so many people feel an empathy with in so many different ways. There's just that missing step to commemorate their role in our in our history.
7: Yeah. Well, we we hope that the publicity that we're creating will will inspire someone to step forward and say, "Hey, I want to do a film. I want to do this. I want to do
1: that." Night. We put on our armour on a Saturday night. Dress pressed as well as can be, sponged down, then placed between bedstead and mattress. Boots blackened with soot so the scuff marks won't show. But it is our heads that make other heads turn. The heavy earrings that sway when we walk. Hats make a statement. Feathers floating above us in all colours of the rainbow. The dockers might unload goods from faraway places, but we let them know there is nothing more exotic in the East End than us. Nor anyone more determined. We're not looking for whistles, a glass of gin or good-looking boys. We're here to find support, to tell our story. Tonight, we're speaking to the Trades Council, listing the reasons why we had to strike. How and may find us, made work dangerous, refused to listen to our grievances. When Annie Bizant exposed their exploitation, they tried to scare us into submission. Now we speak for ourselves. Saturday means solidarity. Collecting our strike pay together, explaining the justice of our course to others. Match Girls would dance again on a Saturday night. Today, we are dressed for battle.
4: Debbie Rolls reading her composition, Saturday Night, preceded by Graham Johnson on the Match Girls' Artistic Legacy. There is a distinctive resonance of the Match Girls strike to today's politics. I'd argue that Sarah Chapman and her fellow strikers would see similarities with the Me Too and Black Lives Matter movements. Director, writer and activist Polly Creed, and Neil Jameson, who's been described as the first and most experienced modern day community organizer, told me about how the events of eighteen eighty eight relate to today.
0: As we go
4: Polly, if I could ask you first, what what is the What's the relevance, if you like, the legacy, the, the, the resonance of the Match Girls dispute to kind of youth and community led activism today?
8: I think there's amazing parallels with kind of what what happened then. You know, you saw sort of 13, 14 year old girls. We know, you know, so some of uh, the young women were that age who on the strike committee um, leading this kind of this, this group out on strike. Um, it has massive kind of parallels with, I think, what's happening today with the youth climate movement, with kind of other, you know, feminist movements. And, and I think there's a real lesson to be learned as well, of drawing on the past, in particular, I think, kind of socialist um, and union history and kind of injecting that into the kind of current wave of activism that we're seeing, so much of which is based online, which is really powerful and means that these, the you know, there's a kind of um, democratisation of activism and of the kind of of platforms, but also learning lessons from these amazing women and men that have gone before us um, and kind of the more traditional routes as well of kind of of activism. And I think just as well, rediscovering these moments of history where I think a lot of the time, you know, it's really easy to sort of disparage young women, teenage girls, um, they're kind of often depicted in the media as kind of just screaming over sort of One Direction and boy bands, but actually realising that, that there's this kind of amazing radical history of young women often being leaders, often really kind of rallying other, other young women. Um, and I think in particular just kind of recognising as well the, the impact of the, the Match girls Strike potentially on other kind of union movements. So for, for example, the Docker Strike, but also thinking about Uh, women's rights in general and just really recognising that it was it really started with this kind of these working class women many of whom were from migrant backgrounds um, and making sure that it's not we don't just think about you know middle class uh, feminists that were very uh, suffragettes that were very sort of privileged but thinking about people perhaps that are often overlooked.
4: I, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you, you referenced the, uh, the, the dock workers' strike in 1889, the year after Match Girls' strike. Uh, and, and Neil, you, the, the political legacy uh, of the Match Girls, I mean, there is a clear link, isn't there, between what they did and then what the dockers did and and subsequent events as well?
9: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a community organiser and I've spent my time as an organiser trying to teach what other people have said before, is that all change comes from the margins Uh, The Match Girls strike is a classic example of something which was sort of invisible. It wasn't capitalised on by anybody, really, until, frankly, the Match Girls Memorial came along, uh, which has made it much more popular and up-to-date. And as Polly says, it's got lots of messages, particularly for young women, uh, about how change takes place. When I came to East London in 1994, I did study the history of East London and wanted to do something which was... um, to, my job was to build an organization of local people to fight for justice and so on. And so I fell upon, because I didn't know the story before, the story of the match girls, because I do think that those women were either daughters of or married to or partners of the men who then decided the next year that they had to do something. And it's very important to make that distinction. The first industrial strike, as I understand it, was by women. And that was called the Match Girl Strike. It, it happened. It a lot of help from other people and so on. But nevertheless, without the courage of those young women, it wouldn't have happened. It then led to the next year. To, you can imagine people talking over the pub and what have you to saying, oh, what's, what's your what's your partner doing now? What's your daughter doing? And, and then they would have talked. The men would have talked, definitely, because uh, the women still played a part in the docker strike by feeding the men it, for a long time. Because of course they got no money once they strike in 1889, but that is relevant for today. That basically uh, this movement started with women. The dockers' strike started. The whole well, was cemented. The trade union movement itself, the Transport and General Workers' Union, came out of that. Now called Unite, came out as a result of that strike. Basically, the Labour Party came out of that. So the sequence of women doing stuff then the men doing stuff, then they're beginning to organise. And then, of course, the Labour Party in um, Keir Hardie, the first Labour MP, was actually elected by an alliance of friendly societies and other groups. It wasn't really, the Labour Party didn't exist until all of that stuff had happened. So very uh, relevant for today, and particularly very relevant to the, for the history of most change comes from the margins. It never starts in Parliament that's what we got completely gaga about. Everything has to happen through Parliament. In reality, change comes from people like those young match girls who said, "Enough's enough."
4: And, and in terms of the history of the East End, I, the match girls and, and the Doctor and strike also started a process of, of, of transformation. I, I understand that the, the way in which that part of the capital developed and regarded itself changed.
9: Um, yes, absolutely. It was it was a combination of bad conditions, of course, by what what seemed to be, Bryant and May, I'm a Quaker myself, they were Quakers, but you know, the Quakers led the uh, abolition of slavery stuff, so none of us is perfect, which is very good, but without the magical striking, the Quakers would not have known that they were, or would maybe not even have cared that they were causing such distress and such physical harm to these young women whose only way of getting any resources was to work there, whatever happened. It was also very relevant to this formation of the Salvation Army and this combination of the army then, much more radical than they are today, setting up an alternative factory for making matches that don't poison people. That was a very good action by the the radical Salvation Army by William and Catherine Booth. All of those fantastic things happened around about that time, which leave us what we are today. So that people have got to continue to organise in order to, see off social injustice
4: well well that's that's what i wanted to say and that takes us back to to the work that you're, you're doing polly and the the the, the much girls musical that you are writing composing uh, 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 as well the notion of citizenship and uh, of, of that being something that is that is is valuable that that is not kind of god-given as it were or, or comes, from, comes from the sky it's something you have to you have to develop and build and fight for and the solidarity that that is part of uh, of a notion of citizenship is, is are those are those ideas that we see expressed today can you trace those back uh, uh, as well it uh, was 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 were the match girls the the core the cause of that or, or a, a, a fundamental iteration which gave it the momentum that's carried it forward over a hundred years
8: I think so i mean whether it is traced back enough is the question whether it's really kind of acknowledged and celebrated. I think it, it was part of this kind of moment in history where there was so much happening. And I think the match girls were kind of absorbing that in the East End and would have had kind of political agency and awareness as well, which is something that's also overlooked sometimes in the story. I think sometimes it when it is taught in schools and things, there's this idea that, you know, Annie Annie Besson came along and kind of who had this, you know, had a major role to play but that it was kind of overnight, it came out of nowhere and sort of this idea of, you know, striking and things would have been completely um, sort of alien to these women. But I think that, you know, from what we do know about them, it shows that they did have kind of political agency and were kind of engaged. But I think it was part of a kind of wider web of, of things going on at that time. Um, but I do think as well, it was a massive, and to excuse the pun, a spark that led to kind of huge other social change. And I think that Neil's right as well about change coming from the margins. You know, I was thinking about as as you were speaking about the Me Too movement and the fact that, you know, that started off, I think, in 2006 or 2007 as a kind of it was a really marginal movement that was started by a woman called Tarana Burke. And then, you know, gradually over time, it was kind of picked up by Hollywood and suddenly kind of thrown into the spotlight in a different way. But it always, it you know, most of these movements come from uh, marginalized communities sort of doing it for themselves and then, you know, Get picked up by um, the sort of the press and the, the fashionable sort of elite at the time. Um, and I think that's something that it'd be really, I think we need to recognize more today, especially with kind of a lot of the act, you know, tokenistic activism that we see, but really kind of tracing it back to grassroots movements as well.
4: Yeah. I mean, I mean, the Match Girls, anyone who teaches the Match Girls or looks at the Match Girls as, as history is kind of missing the point so, somewhat, I, I, I think. Neil, he- What do you think would be the most appropriate memorial for for the Match Girls?
9: In a way, it's not so much the statue or the pictures or the paintings. It is exactly what Polly's doing. We've got to fight this narrative, negative narrative, that change comes from Parliament, sometimes from the king or the queen, people are taught. When I went to history, who was king at the time, they had more power than now. But basically, there would have been people like the Match Girls always. And, of course, they exist everywhere young women, young men, older men, what have you. And, and as Body says, frankly, the, the movements which we've seen grow up in the last few few years really, you know, Black Lives Matter it's another example. It's quite helpful if Hollywood picked this up, but it's not helpful if they if they then make it uh, just the pretty ones get involved or just the really eloquent ones got involved. The, those young women must have been a mixed bag of poor girls who somehow had the backbone Enhanced by a few celebrities coming along, Annie Bazant, uh, George Bernard Shaw, of course, played a significant part as an ally of them. You need these allies. The press were very helpful then. The press now are so narrow, and, and people don't turn to the press for much, really. But the role of the East London advertiser who constantly and the Times. The Times was very good. They reported on the on the strike. That really got the uh, Bryant and May panicking. Of course, with the Dockers' strike. Uh, the Cardinal got involved. So there were alliances, which are quite difficult to do these days, particularly with the uh, press, because really there's only one or two uh, newspapers that would report on something as this, as something serious rather than frivolous and troublemaking or something. It was it was historic. And so if we can get a statue up and if people will help us with the resources, to a certain extent, I don't mind where it goes. Uh, so long as around there is the story through teachers and the right teaching of history, is that you could do this. It has to be, this wasn't, this is relevant to what we're doing now. It's to, so relevant that the plight of women is still relevant, absolutely relevant to some of the things that happen uh, and the plight of uh, minorities and people of colour and so on. Uh, Organise, agitate and teach people how to do this.
4: And on, on that point, uh, Polly, I mean, what are the sort of educational resources that that the trust can can offer people if there are if there are teachers in in any sector of education who be listening to this? What what are the sort of things that that can be provided off the shelf?
8: So we have um, together with uh, Louise Jordan, who is a musician and songwriter. Together, we've created a kind of a pack that's a, a six part pack that is um, an introduction. to the Match Girls story, um, but also a kind of uh, delve into the the world of protest songs. So connecting the the story of the Match Girls with today. And that's available on, um, the first video is available on YouTube. But if people want to get in touch and access the full series, they can access that and we're also able to we're kind of developing more options in terms of drama workshops you know we're really really keen to kind of work with young people um, and I think coming you know connecting with what Neil said it's that idea of visibility um, and I think growing you know for me growing up I'd kind of I'm sort of in my mid-20s now so you know the stories I, I've heard about uh, I heard about um, strike action was, you know, my mum talked about the minor strike was, you know, people you know, talking about um, the, the sort of poll tax, all of that. And it felt to me like that that kind of radical history was something that really belonged to white men. And I think that just this story for me feels like the story that I wish I'd known when I was you know, 13 or 14. Um, and just, just that idea of seeing people doing it that are, you know, similar to you. And I think often when you're that age as well, and you're, especially for young women, it's really, you, you know, you're plagued by self doubt and just even kind of speaking out in your own voice. Um, it can feel very kind of daunting. But actually seeing, hopefully, learning about the story offers kind of insight into the fact that anyone can do this, anyone can speak out against injustice.
4: You know, one thing that Polly said really, really did make me think it's about how, you know, you could, you could do this now. You can always speak out against injustice. That's the, the real golden thread that links the Match Girls with what's happening today, because there are certain things that demand a response that can't be left alone, that needs to happen to create a fairer, more just society. <laughs> And they speak as loudly to us now as they did 120 years ago. Let's have uh, our next reading, which is from Eleanor Walsh, who is reading her composition, Strike Anywhere.
10: Strike Anywhere by Eleanor Walsh. At the bench again, match fingers working from memory. You're reliving last night's ostrich feathers, the colour of the sky that hangs over the factory's high ceiling. Glue and dust growing now like an extra skin. Pretty, weren't you? In the musical, everyone said so. The double-ended lucifers in your fist require only friction. Not along the red edge of the box, but anything at all. And you think of this when the other girl has sixpence swiped for a tray that topples from her hands. Only friction, a bright fissure through the air that sounds like breaking before the flame finds its way. And you made it yourself, didn't you? Admit, you're becoming ostrich egg, bulge under the jaw and tooth cracking sound, pushing scared fingers into your throat where it swells. You're heavy enough to drown, growing new bones. You are incubating, pipping breaking up when you bite down but last night alone you sang the words at the ceiling after the show and thought of the ostrich feathers that moved on the dance floor as if they could take flight the blue of the great outdoors with matches breaking in your wet fist before raining down you hear the same old music play now as you push through through this cruel eggshell a flames fissure through the air that sounds like breaking they're scavenging pennies from you, but you're suddenly starving and sobered up, balled up and matchbox small, like a fist, for the fight.
4: I hope you've enjoyed spending the last half hour or so in the company of the Match Girls. My thanks to Samantha, Graham, Polly, Neil, Emma, Debbie and Eleanor for making it happen. If you want to find out more about the dispute, the strikers and the campaign for a permanent memorial – You can visit matchgirls1888.org from where you can also buy the anthology of poetry and fiction we've had readings from. There's a companion blog for this podcast over on the makesyouthink.com website, giving you all the links, signposting and background to what we've been discussing and also to the writers we've heard from. The Working River collection of songs, including... The Match Girl song that we've drawn heavily on in in this episode is available from gftu.org.uk. It's a great collection of songs and you might like to look up the Union Jews special episode on the Working River Collection available from the podcast platform of your choice. You can contact the show by email to unionjews at makesyouthink.com or tweet us at JewsUnion. Feel free to let us know what you think and suggest other themes for one of our special episodes. The Pete Dunhill Choir will play us out, but first there's time for one last reading. Painters, by Emma
5: Pursehouse. Painters, by Emma Pursehouse. She stops by the bench, her dog yapping at Bow churchyard pigeons. She glances at my Tesco Express name badge. Lunch hour read, she asks. I wave my book at her. Yeah. You into art? I'll give up. Yeah, you? Me? She's distracted by council workers arriving. Maybe a little. You draw? More of a painter. What kind of things? Hands, mostly. Difficult things, hands. She looks at me then, sharp eyes staring straight into mine. You an artist? God no, unless you count arrangement of product onto shelves. Oi! She makes a sudden beeline for the workers. Leave it! The workers ignore her. Clean stains from the statue's upturned palm. She looks shaken. Let me buy you a coffee, I say, from across the way. I return, find her sitting on my bench, dog snuffling at her veined hands. Perch beside her and it pours out her tumbled, jumbled lunch hour history lesson. Now, then, blood on hands, slaves, match girls, coffee beans, zero hours, sweatshops, remembrance. That night, she foots the ladder. I redaub Gladstone's hands, match head red. As I attempt to return her paint, she refuses it. Pats my hand. Yours now, dear, she says. As we go marching in. Like Ask him how
0: we'd like it if his wife got fussy jaw. Ask him how we'd like it if his wife got fussy jaw. Ask him how we'd like it if his wife got fussy jaw. As we go marching in. Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah
4: The Union Jews podcast is presented by me, Simon Sappo. It is a Makes You Think production.
3: I'm Rick Smith and this is Labour History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1786. Daniel Shays led a group of farmers in an armed uprising. They were angry about taxes levied by the state of Massachusetts. Shays had been a captain in the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War. After the war, an economic downturn hit farmers hard. During the Revolutionary War, many Massachusetts residents had few assets other than their land. After the war, European businesses refused to extend lines of credit to businesses in Massachusetts. The Europeans insisted on payment of goods in hard cash. Massachusetts businesses in turn demanded that their own customers pay with hard cash. Rural farmers could not comply. Farmers began to lose their land when they could not meet their debt and tax obligations. To make matters worse, some soldiers were having a hard time collecting their pay for their military service. When the Massachusetts legislature adjourned without considering the many petitions from those seeking relief from the courts issuing foreclosures, many farmers had had enough. Daniel Shays and others began to organize protests against the harsh economic conditions. Daniel Shays and others ended up in court for non-payment of debts. That led Shays and the other farmers in the armed uprising. The rebels shut down the courts. In turn, the Massachusetts legislature passed harsh measures to try and quell the protests. They issued a resolution which allowed authorities to keep people in jail without a trial. Eventually, militia forces suppressed the 4,000 rebels. Some protesters were pardoned. A few escaped to nearby states, with two being sentenced to death by hanging. Daniel Shea hid in the Vermont woods until he was later pardoned. Even before the industrial revolution that gave rise to labor unions, agricultural workers faced many hardships. And this is another example of them banding together to fight for change.
2: That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review that really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's audio included the trailer for The Match Girls, book and lyrics by Bill Owen, music by Tony Russell, performed at the Bernie Grant Art Center in London in July 2012. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and They'll come out of its initiative for labor and the working poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pazak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history.